Hello, and welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name is Adam, your host, and welcome back to the History of Irish Tennis. This is episode five. Over the last four episodes, I've been talking to Tom Higgins, author of the three-volume book, The History of Irish Tennis. And topics that we've covered have included the origins of tennis, the Irish Championships, the Golden Era of Irish Tennis, the Davis Cup, and a whole lot more. On this episode, we are going to talk about the Fed Cup, US Tennis Scholarships, the question of the oldest tennis club in Ireland and why it's not such a simple question, and a couple of other topics as well. Just before we start this episode, a reminder that you can buy Tom's book, three volumes, 1800 pages. It's called The History of Irish Tennis. It, uh, the detail it goes into is incredible, as is Tom's knowledge, as you will see over the course of this podcast and the other ones. And if you had, if you would have any interest in buying the book, it'll cost just 50 euro, including delivery to anywhere in Ireland. And you can send Tom an email at higgins.tom at itsligo.ie. And I've, I'm leaving that email address in the description of this episode as well. So I'd really encourage you to get in touch with Tom and buy yourself a copy of the book. Uh, it, it really is a, an amazing book to have all about the history of Irish tennis. Now, let's get into this episode. And here is Tom. Here we go. Now, now Tom, uh, okay. just start into this episode, just want to say a big thanks for, for all the time over the last few weeks. I really appreciate uh everything that you have you have done and all you've put into it it's, it's much appreciated but just to start this episode we're going to touch on on the fed cup to start with and i know the fed cup started a lot later than the davis cup so what, what what can you say about the origins of the fed cup and then maybe move into some of the irish success and, and irish participation in it well the the federation cup was inaugurated in, in 1963 on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the international tennis federation and it was held at the Queen's Club in London. And because the weather was so bad, a lot of the matches were held indoors. Now, I've come across two references on this. Uh, one was 16 countries entered. And then another one, Ireland weren't asked. So I suspect Ireland would have sent two players over to London at the time, but it didn't happen. Now, in the, in the first year, by the way, America beat Australia in the final two matches to one, including the famous Billie Jean King which was Billie Jean Moffat at the time. Now, what you, a lot of people might know was that the, the Cup was originally called the Federation Cup, and then it was changed to the Fed Cup in 1995. But as of last September, I think it was September, it's now going to be called the Billie Jean King Cup in honour of all she's done for the Fed Cup and for ladies' tennis. So yeah. it's, got, it's got a new title. In the second year, Ireland, so I, I, go, I go back to the cup itself and some of the some of the stats in relation to the cup. The tiebreak was introduced in 1976. The most wins between 1963 and 2019 were, was the United States with 18 wins. And surprisingly, the Czech Republic come next for 11. So in total, over 57 years, there were 11 different countries have actually won it. Australia and America are the only two countries that are, were winners of the Federation Cup and the Davis Cup at the same time. Okay. Now, the, the first big change was in 1964, 
the American Lawn Tennis Association were concerned about the entries from Europe in the American Championships. And they actually chartered a plane from Amsterdam, I think it was. Yeah, from Amsterdam to take all the European players over to play in the Federation Cup with a view to also taking in the American Open Championships around the same time. Mm. And on that plane, we had Joe Hackett as captain and Geraldine Houlihan or Barneville later on and Eleanor O'Neill were the two Irish representatives. They were uh, our top ladies for many years from the 60s onwards. In the, David, in the Federation Cup, she lost to Billie Jean King and Eleanor McFadden lost to Nancy Gunter and then the lost doubles to Billie Jean and Karen Suzman. An interesting thing about Geraldine Barnwell's participation in the, in the Federation Cup, she, she's played against three Wimbledon champions, Billie Jean King, the first year, then in 1974 against Virginia Wade of Great Britain, in yeah. 1975 against Martina Navratilova, who was playing for Czechoslovakia in her first match. So um, Geraldine Barneville had the honour of playing those three. So they were the, the early days of the Federation Cup. And if we move right forward and look at the, the overall figures and the number of players that have played, in total, 47 different ladies have featured on the uh, Irish teams over the years. And of those, top of the pile in terms of ties played was Jean and Ireland, who played in 42 ties and won 24, 22 out of 41 singles. And uh, Yvonne Doyle, 41 ties. She won 15 doubles out of 20, 22 doubles and 16 singles out of 27 singles. Leslie O'Halloran would be the next highest, having played in 32 ties with 20 wins and 20 losses. By the way, just as, a, as, a, as an aside, the most rubbers played in the Federation Cup was Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, the Spanish girl. She's played in 100 different rubbers. Uh, the youngest player ever to play in it was a Greek girl, 12 years of age, and the oldest was a woman from Bermuda, 52 years of age. And that brings us on to a question from Dave Mullins. Here it is, and followed by its answer. Hi, Tom. I'd be interested to know who the first Irish tennis players were to accept a college tennis scholarship to the United States. Where did they play? Were they successful? And what are they doing now? Thank you. Now, I actually did try to do a bit of research on this and find, found out a couple of things that I didn't know about. But I know Susan Minford, who was an interpro tennis player from the North at 15 years of age, she actually played, played out in America. But I'm not sure what college she played in, but she played in the circuit at a time when she was invited to play on the Federa one of the earlier Federation Cup teams. 1981, I came across uh, Maria Bolster, who played in America, and she was actually fairly good at other sports as well. I think I think she was a basketball international, as well as being quite good at, at tennis. Now, I have two sets of years, which to a lot of people might be surprising. 1982, and in 1982, there were about, there was about 20 Irish players playing in different universities in, in the States, including Joanne Leslie and Rocky O'Halloran, Michael Nugent, you might have heard of him, John Hackett, the son of Joe Hackett from uh, Maria Bolster herself, Paul Casey, Jennifer Thornton. They are in different universities. 
1985, a few years later, some of those players are still there. And then there were a total of 15 in total with some new newcomers in there. And one of them was Rona Howitt. And Rona Howitt went to Texas Christian University and she was in her second year in 1985. And she wrote a little description of her time in America, which I think might be of interest. I went out to the US on a tennis scholarship in January 1984. It all started a year earlier and I began to apply to several American colleges. To my surprise, the majority of them replied very promptly with either satisfactory or unsatisfactory results. All the coaches were impressed with the fact that I played in the Orange Bowl, and this certainly helped my case. I ended up going to Oklahoma State University, where I never made an application, but by coincidence, a good friend of mine from Scotland, who was on the team there, informed me of the availability of the scholarship. On arriving, I had no idea what the college system entailed, which certainly would have been an added plus had I known. Between January and May is the tennis season, and we traveled continuously to numerous states such as Michigan, Nebraska, Arizona, Florida, Georgia. It was a great opportunity to see the country. I have two years to complete, and when I reflect back on the past two years so far, it's been great, and she, she had no regrets whatsoever about going there. So it's a life experience for a young person to get the ed education and to get the competitive tennis as well. So I think um, we've done enough on that in the sense that every young person that you talk to, and I think you had someone on recently in one of your podcasts dealing with the same topic, they will all have their, their stories and how they got on. And it's all part and parcel of the collage of tennis experiences. Yeah, I know it, there is a, a lot of people going over these days. It's, it's really popular. So it is great. You know, it's interesting to hear about the, some of those earliest players and, and how, how they would have got on years ago, some of the first players going over. So that, that's great to hear. Now, now, I think just to move on, Tom, okay. to, yeah, a, a, I know you have a little bit to say on this, on, on, on the, the very bits of equipment that have been used in tennis over the years and how that equipment has changed. So did, what, what can you say on, on that? Well, no, <laughs> this is a topic that, that, that's, that's fairly extensive, but I picked up a few different things that um, I think are worth recording. First of all, if we go back to the, the origins of tennis, lawn tennis in 1874, they were all built on croquet courts, which were all grass. Then it was like, would you believe over 100 years ago, there were hard courts used in a lot of places, including asphalt. And as far as 1889, the Trinity College Championships were, was, were on hard courts. So whereas we all imagine that lawn tennis was there forever and a day it still is but gradually people wanted to play more winter tennis and power courts of different types came into vogue concrete courts became popular in american australia and as far back as 1883 would you believe there was concrete courts in mayo and the big problem they found with the concrete courts was that the um the drainage that if it wasn't properly manufactured the courts were very wet and the courts were not available as often as they might have been. Now, tennis quick came in in the mid-1950s with a porous variety of concrete that made it easier to play on. Yeah. If we go on to rackets, I know we've only a limited time, but if we go on to rackets, a man called Dowling in, in the Dublin area actually had a, had a firm that manufactured tennis rackets way back and there were actually customers from all sorts of countries were ordering rackets from them because manufacturing rackets was obviously a bit of an expertise. 
So aluminium and steel were tried way back. And I think one metal racket goes for as far back as 1889. But the wood was always was always considered the preferred option. Then the racket head was the problem because the wooden rackets were always preferred. But uh, if they got damp, the wood warped. And I know that from my own experience. But the wooden racket uh, like held its own. And I think the last wooden racket to appear at Wimbledon was somewhere around uh, 1985. Or, and then uh, we all got used to bigger racket heads, bigger sweet spots and uh, stronger rackets with more power in them. And as you know, there's a huge selection available now. Yeah. But on tennis balls, there was always the issue years ago, they were provided in boxes of six, and it was only when pressurized cans came in that the balls actually would last in terms of their pressure. And that, that's, that's a reasonably recent innovation that probably the 70s or 80s, when they came in for first. Footwear. Well, now, the, the original footwear was way back to the Navy, where the sailors needed footwear that wouldn't slip on deck. And they actually ended up getting rubber soles shoes uh, made from them. Subsequently, uh, tennis took, took this on, on board and a range of different shoe types came in. But in general, the shoes had to be flat, they were rubber soled, and they usually had a canvas top. And I can recall the time when the canvas top, the shoes were white, playing on grass courts, and you came home in the evening and they were all green, and you actually had to go and get whitening and, and dry them out before the next time you played. One little thing that came in back in one of the early Davis Cups was some of the Americans on a wet surface brought in spikes. And of course, that helped their grip when the ground was wet. But uh, in some uh, tennis clubs, the spikes were banned because they were digging up the grass, as you, as you might expect. Yeah, very good. Very good. And I just want to, to move on then, Tom, um, just to bring you back, because I remember in the previous episode we did, you mentioned a story about Sean Sorensen uh, making his way to a Davis Cup match and, and back and, and, and how that unfolded. I was wondering, are there, are there any other kind of anecdotes like that of, of Irish players trying to... to to travel to a court for, for a match? Well, <laughs> I, I've looked at this topic of getting to the court and uh, I came across all sorts, all sorts of different ones here, but I, I go straight to one in 1983. And in 1983, David Miley, who you've heard of, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, did a three month tour of India playing in, in tournaments there and he said that the, the prize funds were weren't brilliant but he, it was a great experience but he, he said when he first arrived in Delhi in December the 4th with the intention to play in tour, tour, two tournaments before the satellite tournament began the culture shock hit him and he said he just not know how he's going to survive for 12 weeks so after two eye-opening days in Delhi he said I took the first of my many long train journeys all of 32 hours. Imagine spending 32 hours on a train to Madras, Yaman, he says. It looked like being a wasted journey, but an unseasonable monsoon forced the event to be cancelled. However, he was fortunate enough to meet up with an Indian player called Vijay Paul, and he invited me to come along to his home in Bangalore and to practice with him and a former UCLA player called Ian Schneidler. Uh, so he actually 
found that Bangalore was a welcome change to the hot and overcrowded atmosphere of Madras and the heat was less oppressive. But he stayed there for a week, practicing two or three hours a day and living with an Indian family. For other people, uh, different types of problems. And I'm going to go through a couple of them to illustrate the type of things that can and have happened in the past. One I wanted to mention was during the war, cars were few and far between and, and there was a shortage of, of petrol for, for cars. I've got a quote here. The, bis the bicycle became a prized possession and had to be treated lovingly because of the shortage of rubber tubes and tires. Now, Sir Kemp, who was a Davis Cup player and one of the top Irish players, himself and Brian Jennings and Hector Ryan and Dick Jones, they decided that the turf train to Cork, they wanted to go down and play tennis in Cork, the turf train, as, as they called it, was too slow. So the, they rented our two tandem bicycles and cycled to Yall tournament by Ennis Gorty and Dungarvan. And needless to say, these are all good players. They won a lot of prizes. After the tournament, the keen fit young men then cycled to Wicklow for another event and from there back to Dublin. And Brian Jennings and Sir Kemp did the exact same trip from Dublin to Cork play tennis and back again, three years on the trot. Now, Rita Rutherford from Donnybrook, she actually mentions that back in the day during the war, cars were off the road and had a pony and trap. So she used to drive the pony and trap from Sandyford to play league matches. And there were white markings on the ground for the cars were parking when there was cars and the pony and trap would be wheeled in, into the parking space and left there for the duration of that and she get on the horse and pull your trap and head out home again. One other one, 1964, in lawn tennis and badminton, Michael O'Neill wrote an article about our two top players. We mentioned them before, Eleanor O'Neill and Geraldine Barneville, the first couple to play in the Federation Cup for Ireland, but it wasn't normally known at the time to get places, they had to travel. Much of the Borough girl's success is due to her great friend and rival, Eleanor O'Neill. They were affectionately known in Irish circles as the Terrible Twins. They rarely lose a doubles match and they shared the same apartment or same, same flat in Dublin and travelled to various tournaments on Miss Hoolan's scooter. They literally went on the scooter all over the place. These are the number one and number two players in ladies' tennis in Ireland in the 1960s. Uh, that's, that's some interesting ones. It's, it's good to hear some of those stories, Tom. Um, but just, Tom, to move on to a final question, um, and it's the question of, of what is Ireland's oldest tennis club? And, and maybe it's a little bit tricky, but uh, what, what, what answer would you have to Ireland's oldest tennis club? <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. When I was looking at this particular topic some years ago, I came across a number of clubs that were among the oldest in the country, and there were varying pieces of information available. For example, Fitzwilliam is one of the one of the oldest clubs in the country, as we all know. But I can confirm that it's not the oldest because it was founded in November 1877. Earlier that year, Trinity College founded the tennis club, but there's no date on when that actually started. Now, as we told you in a previous podcast, lawn tennis at a very specific point in time came into being. That's when the major Clopton Wingfield set up his tennis packages of nets and so on and sold them all over the world, literally in 1874. And that year, an awful lot of tennis sets were bought 
by private individuals in Ireland. And with literally within a few years, there were something like 38 clubs in Ireland. So it, it grew from individual tennis courts on private houses to, to, to clubs. Now, in terms of clubs, you have, if you look at the records of the club, number of clubs in Ireland, there's quite a, quite a few of them, but you have a lot of them were tied in with other sports. And the Monkstown Club in Dublin, it was once declared as the oldest club in the country. It may or may not be the case. It certainly, it came through from the County Dublin Archery Club, which was founded in 1846, well before lawn tennis was even invented. The Lansdowne Lawn Tennis Club came about from 1874, when the Irish Champion Athletic Club got its own grounds, and then they subsequently included in those grounds archery, tennis, cricket, croquet, football, and a cinder track. And the, those grounds were officially opened on the 23rd of May, 1874. And nobody can say exactly when the first courts were put up. But if this particular athletic club had a lot of other sports and tennis suddenly became popular, the chances are that they were one of the first people to buy into getting these sets of tennis and forming the club. So they are contenders, if you like, for the oldest. So as were Monkstone, Argadine Vale in Cork, in 1875, they had already got sports there of hockey and cycling. And in 1875, the Travers family set out land for four tennis courts, which subsequently became the Argadine Vale and Lawn Tennis Club. That's 1875, the year after Wingfield. So that's a top contender, if you like, for the oldest club. And then one that we can tie down fairly clearly Two weeks after the first Wimbledon in 1877, Limerick Lawn Tennis Club ran their first tournament. So they founded earlier in 1877, obviously before that tournament took place in July. Yeah. Now, one last one then is Rushbrook. We mentioned Rushbrook earlier, and it's got a long history of tennis, tennis activities. But the, two years ago, Michael Donald from the club wrote the story of Rushbrook Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club from 1870 to 2007. And as he said to me, a good case as any for being the oldest club in the country because they were near the military base, uh, Cove, Queenstown, as it was called, and an awful lot of the military were involved, would have been involved in sport. And in 1876, maps of the area, those croquet grounds were confirmed as being there. So they, there was a good chance that the tennis packages that Captain Wingfield sold in 1874 that they, in the south of Ireland, that they were used fairly soon afterwards. So bottom line of it is, there are several contenders still, and unless, and this is probably a lesson for everybody that's involved in organising sport, keep the records, because someday somebody will want to know X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And if someone throws out those records or don't keep them accurately, then they're lost forever. But contenders definitely include Limerick, Lawn Tennis Club, Lansdowne, Rushbrook, Monkstown, possibly in Cork, and there are a few others as well. So yeah. I no longer say the oldest club in the country is X, Y, or Z, but we don't know is the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's interesting to hear because it's, it's definitely a, it's not an easy question to answer, but it's interesting to hear some of those contenders and, and hear about that. That's really good. And that is where we are going to leave this episode and indeed leave the series. As I said at the beginning of the episode, a huge thanks to Tom Higgins for all the time that he's put into this, all the help that he's he's given. 
I really feel like I've learned a lot over the last number of weeks and I've really enjoyed doing this. So a big thanks to Tom. If you did enjoy this episode, please do consider listening to the earlier episodes. There's a lot more like this. And also, if you did enjoy this, please consider sharing this around. Uh, The more people that can hear all about the history of Irish tennis, I think the better. So please do help spread the word. A big thanks for listening to this episode. And a final note that I'd encourage you to get in touch with Tom. Uh, His email address, as I mentioned earlier, is higgins.tom at itsaligo.ie. And that is in the description. So get in touch with Tom with any feedback on on this episode, on any of the other episodes. And in particular, if you have any interest in buying the book, which I would highly, highly recommend. So that is all. I'll be back soon with more episodes of the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. And until then, stay safe and goodbye.